Pursuit of Podcast, a purely guest-centric show focusing on people and organizations that advance positive change. Positivity can be anywhere, and in a time of vast discord, the pursuit of is finding those who champion its causes loudest. Join us as we sit and learn about the pursuits of local leaders in their community. Let's go. Hello, good people, and welcome to the Pursuit of Podcast, where it's truly not us, it's you. I'm Ryan Buck, Artist Development, New Leonard Media. With me is the boss, Mark Wilson, President, New Leonard Media. How are you? Hey, Ryan. I am well. I've been editing audiobooks all you day. You have. That's not, that is enough about us, for sure, because today our guest is Cami Fraser, Executive Director, Michigan Indian Legal Services. How are you? I'm doing okay. How about yourself? Good. Thank you for being here. It was really nice. And, and again, we talked before we started rolling. Cami, this is your first podcast, yes. being on your first podcast, and you're not a super avid podcast listener. No. So when the idea came up, is this what you envisioned at all? The the setting, did you have a vision or? I didn't really have a vision. I mean, I know, <laughs> well, Mark from any number of capacities, but mainly his DJ work. Uh-huh. <laughs> so like I started you know kind of googling to, to like listen to some of the old podcasts to get a sense of what it was that you guys awesome. were doing so okay listen to several Good. i was very impressed thanks so. oh well that's nice yeah. well we like to do a little yeah. check-in yeah to make sure we're living up to expectations and that's good mm-hmm. so looking at your title and what you do in your organization what's your elevator pitch when you're a member back when we used to go to cocktail parties and what was the pitch to say, this is what I do? Well, that's a tough question. I haven't been to a, to a cocktail party in years, especially <laughs> these days with COVID. Even... It evoked <laughs> kind of nice imagery, I mean, to I went honest. to my first meeting, like public meeting, within the past like, couple of weeks since all of this started. So they're just trying to even think about how to present what I do. is just so kind right. of foreign right now. <laughs> Everything's like Zoom meetings or just in the office, so any sort of travel or, sure. or public meetings just still seems very foreign. I mean, I would talk about what we're doing is that we are an LSC-funded organization. We receive both state and federal grants to provide free legal services for people who live in poverty with a focus on federal Indian and tribal law. We do a lot of Indian Child Welfare Act cases in order to help families you know, stay together that and we do a lot of defensive work in the tribal courts, whether that's eviction defense or criminal defense, child welfare defense, juvenile delinquencies, cases of that nature. Wow. Um, that's where we're working. We're a statewide organization, and there's 12 federally recognized tribes in Michigan, and we practice in all of those separate judicial systems. Wow. And including the state of Michigan. That's a packed so. elevator pitch. Wow. That's amazing. Well, I don't know that. That at this point is an elevator pitch, unless you're talking about like 15 stories high, but it's it's perfect. You, know. you were created <laughs> to, and I'm quoting, address the unmet legal needs documented in a study conducted by the Michigan Governor's Commission on Indian Affairs in the early 70s. Yes, and back then the initial issue was there were not enough attorneys, period, to handle these cases because of the kind of lack of fee-based opportunities. Is that accurate to say in, in the beginning? Well, I would say that that was part of it. I mean, that's one of the things that the study found, and it's still actually a huge issue in the Upper Peninsula, that there just are not attorneys to hire, but especially not ones who specialize in federal Indian law or tribal law. 
But also back in the 70s, a lot of the tribes were not federally recognized yet. And that was one of the major projects that MLS took on back in the day was to help the tribes regain federal recognition, including the local yeah. Grand Traverse Band, yeah. <laughs> yeah. the first tribe to become administratively federally re-acknowledged. But we worked back in the day with five different tribes to help them regain federal recognition at various points. I mean, we weren't like necessarily the ones who, who accomplished it, but we did work with five of the tribes right. in Michigan that have right. regained federal recognition. In looking so. on those early days, was that start of the conversation about this huge gap in, in services provided to Native American communities? Was that at least a starting point, getting a conversation going to the broader scope of what's happening now? Yeah, well, I mean, part of what the study found was that there just wasn't services being provided or available. And we obviously were there to meet that need. And that still is a large part of what it is that we're doing, is that we are trying to do the work where there isn't other services available. A lot of the tribes aren't or don't have the resources to necessarily hire their own public defenders, so we tried to fill in in those areas. None of the other regional legal aids, as far as I'm aware of, do eviction defense in the tribal courts. Mm -hmm. So when the tribe is trying to evict people from tribal public housing, we're available to, to provide assistance right. for the tribal member to try to help them stay in the housing. Oh, so, well, critical yes, now. <laughs> at this point. I mean, back in the day, we were primarily representing the tribes when they were nonprofits. I mean, there were still tribes, but they weren't fairly recognized governments at that point. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. But once the tribes gained federal recognition and economic self-sufficiency or on the road towards that, they became no longer economically needing us. So mm -hmm. we switched to primarily providing work for individual people Right. back in the, I don't know, 80s and 90s. So. Incredible. And at that time, in the 70s, there was so much going on. The IRA was making their presence known. Vietnam was ending, I think, mm -hmm. around the time that you all started doing what you were doing. A, a national recession is recognized by President Ford. What were some of the early struggles back then that are still talked about today? Like, remember <laughs> whens? Are there a couple of key things that you all still look back on, go on, remember that? Well, I would say it's a little bit more complicated than that. But initially, we didn't have stable resources to, to fund MILS. And our bylaws still reflect that, <laughs> where all the rights and responsibilities are still, you know, rest with our board members, including like the, according to the bylaws, the board members are supposed to like hold on to all of our financial documents. And mm -hmm. obviously that doesn't happen because we have the staff to do it. And we're in the process of updating the bylaws right now because of that to be written in a way that's more consistent with a nonprofit that has stable funding. Right. But yeah, back in the day... And actually, we have minutes that reflect this. Maybe about a year or two in, it was like, if we don't get this grant, we're going to fold. <laughs> and they, they even like set the date. If we don't get this grant by this particular date, we're just going to close down MILS. So just kind of a lack of funding. And they actually used to regularly lay people off and so that the, the employees were receiving unemployment right. <laughs> to be able to pay for us to do the work that we were doing way oh. back in the day. So... I mean, that's how we were being funded was in part by Michigan yeah. unemployment. <laughs> so, Well, you, looking back at, at your start, you received your bachelor's from the University of Iowa, political right. science major and anthropology minor. Now, did you stay in the uh, Burge party dorms your freshman year? Did you <laughs> no. hang out at the Ped Mall at all? At the or were Ped you very Mall studious? <laughs> Ped Mall a little bit. 
I went to a lot of concerts and shows back in the day, but yeah. But definitely studious though too. So, but no, I was not ever a resident of Burge while I was in college. When I went to a summer camp there, like years and years ago, I stayed at Burge, but not as a college student. Wow. <laughs> and so your focus early on getting that first degree in Iowa, then you moved on to further education at the University of Michigan. Right. Did you have an end game in mind at the start? Did you have something that you were kind of looking forward to at the end as far as a career, a job, and ultimate goal? I've never been one to like do like the five-year plan, so no. I kind of fall into things <laughs> more than, than doing things in a very planned way. So no. <laughs> and even the fact that I'm back at MILS was more that I was just ready to move back to the Midwest. And yeah. I'd worked at MILS as a a summer intern back in the day. And so when they had a job opening, I applied and came back. But it wasn't, I'm going to spend the rest of my life working into my less and become their executive director. I never had, had necessarily a plan like that. I mean, part of my undergrad degree is I got a certificate in American Indian Native Studies. And when I went to law school, well, I mean, obviously interested in federal Indian law and tribal law, but Michigan didn't really offer a lot of classes in that. There was only one class that was offered by well, it was Professor Weston at the time. But he, I mean, that wasn't like his field of study or anything like that. I right. mean, Michigan wasn't a school that was like a feeder school to the tribes or anything like that. Sure. I mean, it better now that they've got Matthew Fletcher teaching as an adjunct professor, whatever his official title is, is now. But I mean, with Michigan, he's primarily at Michigan State. Uh, I think but he's he does, a tenured professor. Well, yeah, he yeah, is at yeah. Michigan State, but he does oh. teach the class at Michigan now too. So, oh, okay. But I don't know exactly what the arrangement is or what his title is at Michigan when he teaches there, but he's definitely very much tenured at Michigan State. So in any event, I didn't have some like grand plan of this is where I wanted to Your, your answers so. to all of this are so unique and fascinating <laughs> to me because... And rambling? We, no. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's why I'm specifically saying what I'm saying, because we have a lot of guests on the show who have these very weighty responsibility... Mm driven positions like you do mm. and i don't ask the same question but we'll ask similar yeah. questions and the not just fell right into it strategy <laughs> doesn't come up nearly enough and i see you and you're being very serious and i really love the way you said that because it seems like we're to be have this plan and be rigid and stick to it and mm. it's noble to grind away but to have things happen for the right reason yeah. i think sounds lovely well, maybe it's because I've been walking my dog in the snow an awful lot recently. I remember hearing once that you can tell the difference between like a wolf's foot tracks and a dog's foot tracks because a wolf has purpose and it's a straight line, whereas a dog, like my dog, will catch a sniff of something, go this way and that way and chase things. I feel like I'm more like my dog. I just kind of <laughs> go this way for a little bit, go that way uh, for a little likewise. bit. Likewise. Yeah, so in answer to your question, I am not a wolf with a very straight line sort of footprint at all. You're the whimsical canine. Well, (laughs) something. (laughs) Sensing what's on the breeze and going in that direction. Yeah, something. That are easily distracted. Is that okay? Was that too (laughs) That's perfect. We should pull that back a little bit. Well, you talked about a path, but aside from the schooling and the hard skills that you developed along the way to be successful in what you're doing... What other skills, uh, maybe surprising or softer skills, do you have to employ in your job that maybe somebody would be surprised to hear? Well, 
I don't know if it's about skills, but it's actually surprising how much of my, my work is just has to be focused on personnel issues. As, as an executive director, you'd think it would be about policy or you know, grants or budgets or whatever, but just a lot of my day is spent on personnel. And it's not just like disputes or anything like that, but it's just the paperwork <laughs> or yeah. this or that. It just A lot of it's just the HR and personnel work, and I right. wouldn't have ever thought that my job would be so much about so that. So working, working on the business instead of in the yes. business. Yeah, yeah. And that's not on the recruiting flyers <laughs> no, for a lot of these uh, no, types of positions, right? <laughs> it's very well, much not. Event planning, yes. too. <laughs> event planning. And <laughs> well, that's a lot more fun. <laughs> Counseling, yeah. being a friend when a friend is needed. Yeah. Iowa to Michigan yes. yeah. to Alaska. Yes. Essentially. Wow. So what was learned in Alaska? What what did you bring? Because you say Alaska and it's so much wonder. Mm. So what specifically? Well, I had applied to work at the Native American Rights Fund, um, which is, I guess, the primary public interest law firm that, that does federal Indian law. And the Alaska office picked my resume. <laughs> I hadn't specified like which office I wanted to work in. And they've got offices also in Boulder and D.C., and it never occurred to me that Alaska would pick me. And they made the offer for Alaska, and I was like, oh, huh, <laughs> okay. So I went up there for the summer, and I was just like, this is fun. So I went back. <laughs> for the summer, is that a trial that you could do, and there was a path back if you didn't like it? Oh, well, it wasn't as straightforward as that, because they just do summer internships. I mean, they will take recent graduates under fellowships right. regularly, but... Where I was going abroad the following semester, I wasn't around to do fellowship applications. Right. There wasn't really a path to go back there for me. But I, I ended up going back and working for one of the regional nonprofits under the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act. I always mispronounce the acronyms for the, the type You've of You've gone through several lengthy yes. titles of things and done really well. <laughs> I've tried to hide yeah. the look of like, wow, on my face. Oh. You started with the organization as deputy director in 2007. No, I started as a staff attorney in 2007 and was promoted to deputy director sometime after that, maybe 2011, 2012, maybe. I'd have to go back and look. Okay, excellent. Yeah. So the research <laughs> department is going to get a stern talking uh -huh. to a little later. But okay. when you look back on <laughs> yes. the first couple of years... Yeah. And what you wanted to accomplish and what you did accomplish. How do those <laughs> stack up? Well, it's more that I had kind of an idea of what I wanted to accomplish as the executive director. But when I took over in the beginning of 2019, it was also in the middle of the, the longest federal government shutdown <laughs> in history. And it's just been running from crisis to crisis to crisis since then, just trying to put out fires. I mean, Government shut down, everything else under the sun, COVID, <laughs> all of sure, that. Sure, add that on. And it's yeah. just, I haven't really had a chance to be proactive or do proactive things. It's always reactive. Yeah. It's just trying to keep the doors open, the lights on, making sure that I can meet payroll, especially with all the different economic situations that have kind of been thrown our direction. Yeah. So, because in 2019, we started a federal grant. We were federal sub-grantees on a different grant, and then LSC Corporation receives its money from the federal government that 
when the government shuts down, it's like, okay, well, how long are we going to be able to to get funding? And I know that the, the first, like, six months or so, or maybe not even quite that long, but we were constantly having to, like, redo our timekeeping, redo our allocations just to make sure that we were saving enough LSC funds to pay for some of the work that we were doing and knowing that there was a possibility of it running out if the federal government didn't reopen and start, you know, paying LSC again. So it's just been kind of thing after thing of just being reactive. We also had to completely redo our cost allocation policy, which for anybody who's not an accountant, <laughs> you don't care about it. But <laughs> one of our grants required us to completely redo our accounting manual and the way we were doing all of our allocations. So we had to actually completely change even our, our line items. And pretty much right when, well, right when I took over, that, that started to be a huge thing. One so, of your grants yes. necessitated such yes. a huge internal. Oh, yeah. And <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I thank you for sharing that because mm. the more we get insight into mm -hmm. the nuances of what nonprofits deal with. Oh, yeah. And uh, again, kind of breaking down the misnomer of nonprofit what it means in general, but that's amazing insight. So operating as an organization, you have partners like the GTLA Bar Association, the State Bar of Michigan, and those are organizations that make sense for you to partner with. But when you're looking at other partners that maybe aren't so obvious, what's your thought process when looking to strategic partners and how you align with organizations? Well, we're regularly dealing with like the state DHHS um, and the tribes because of the nature of the cases that we're doing. More recently, we've started working with Michigan Works because of our expungement project. And it's because the state decided to fund all the different Michigan organizations in the state to help accomplish <laughs> well, helping people get expungements under the new clean slate law. And legal aids have also received funding, not from the state, but from another funding source or funding sources to help with that process. And it made sense for us to, to work with the local Michigan Works. And, well, the regional nonprofits downstate are also working with their local Michigan Works offices to help relieve the barriers to employment that a lot of people have. Phenomenal. So, you yes. just are an excellent pitcher to a batter because okay. expungement was a topic I wanted to talk to you about. I, I figured it would be. <laughs> something that Mr. Wilson is passionate about as well. And is this statement true for tribal citizens convicted of a crime? Once their debt to society, as it's legally recognized, has been paid, the punishment ends. Is that statement true right now? Well, it depends on how you're defining punishment. But I would say the consequences most definitely are not gone. Convictions are most definitely a barrier to housing, to employment, everything under the sun. One of our current clients is a single mom, a survivor of domestic violence, and she was going to one of the local community colleges to get a medical-related degree through and, you know, an associate's program, had done an internship, applied for a full-time job at the, the place afterwards, and they told her they couldn't hire her because of her previous convictions. And this is somebody who, you know, was in recovery, definitely paid her debt to society, but, you know, some old convictions from her much younger days were a barrier for her to be able to, you know, provide for her family. And that's somebody who we're very happy to help deal with some stupid things that she had done right. in her young adulthood so that she can, you know, continue to move forward. And only so. recently has these businesses recognized that 
it's a barrier on their part as well, that they're only punishing yourself by dismissing this other talent pool. Mm -hmm. I know what it feels like personally to go to college and get a degree and then face those barriers and it's heartbreaking. Yeah. Well, happily, Michigan has completely upended their expungement process within the, the past year on the new clean slate law. Right. But then going into effect also in February, there's a whole bunch related to single driving while intoxicated cases as well. Okay. So for the person who has an old OWI, they will also be able to seek an expungement for those sorts of convictions. But that goes into effect in February. And so. to your point, the clean yeah. slate law is very recent, April oh, of yeah. 2021. Yeah. So uh, of all of the, the positive momentum that gives you, are there still lingering large challenges within the world of expungement and what you're trying to do? Well, I know that my attorneys who are working on this recently did a report for our board talking about some of the, the particular issues that they're facing right now. Right now, there's about a three-month backlog to have the fingerprints at the Michigan State Police Department. Yeah, that is... Yeah. <laughs> the, interesting. The, yeah, and that's across the state that mm -hmm. cases can't move forward because the fingerprints aren't being able to be processed. I mean, whether that's COVID or just not having... The staff to meet the, the influx of all the fingerprints coming through, I don't know, but certainly having an effect on everybody. Yeah, it's affecting also employers trying to get background mm -hmm. checks done mm -hmm. and whatnot, and then yeah. it takes a person too long to get their background check run, and they move on to a different opportunity. Yeah. One of the other issues that we're facing is that we're not finding a lot of local police departments who are running fingerprints these days. That, that has been a huge barrier that people just can't find places to get their fingerprints done. There just aren't a lot of places available to do that, even though the Michigan State Police are supposedly available to do that because of COVID. A lot of them have been just saying, we're just not doing that. That or they'll say, for booking you in jail, we'll run your fingerprints, but we're not, sure. not for this and, sort of process. And for so, Northern Michigan, that the yeah. post, like St. Traverse City, is, isn't really open anyways, yeah. so less people in this area can have mm -hmm. access to get to Cadillac or yeah. elsewhere. Yeah. We're creating a list of where you can and where you can't at this point within this 10 county service area. So if anybody has any questions, we are running a list of where you can. GTB, tribal police will for their tribal members, which is great. But yeah, apparently in Manistee, you can as well with the, the local county sheriffs or, or Manistee police. But we had somebody come up, I think, from Wexford County who said there was nobody in the county who would do that for them. So we've had one of our staff members just calling all the police departments around within this 10-county area to find out who is or who isn't willing to do fingerprinting at this point. Wow. So, yeah. And again, it's maybe to the outside a minor issue, but it's yeah. something that needs to be shown a light on. Yeah. Well, and one of, one of the other issues is that it still costs a person about $50 for the cost of having the fingerprints run by the state police. There's a filing fee to get the expungement that they have to pay to the court. Plus, they have to get certified copies of all their judgment sentencing orders, which is probably about 10 bucks a piece from all the different counties where they would have had convictions. So it's actually a pretty pricey thing for a person to undertake, and that could be a complete barrier for a lot of our right. people in our client community right. who just don't have the resources to pay for things like okay. that. I mean, if you're already struggling just to put food on the table, even though you'd like to, 
to get a better job and get your your criminal history expunged. Right. In terms of priorities, it isn't necessarily what people have for for the little bit of money that they have. Right. So, what would be the next big legal positive next step within the realm of expungement? What would be the next big thing to have happen to make this an even better situation for your clients? Well, it's supposed to becoming automatic expungements. If I'm remembering correctly, I think it starts in about two years. But my understanding is that there's still problems with the records and the integration of information. Mm -hmm. Well, there's an expectation that that process is not going to be smooth. But that's the hope that a lot of this just becomes automatic. So you don't have to file in court and ask to have it expunged. It'll just happen. You have a natural, healthy so, cynicism for yes. government processes and um, how they yes. get done and when. When mm. you look at how you assist your clients with loss of essential services, that's one mm -hmm. that's really I honed in on because I can imagine that has been exacerbated by COVID in the last few mm -hmm. years, the need there. Is there a certain segment of tribal communities that are more affected by this in general? Maybe veterans, maybe any other group within the community that's a little more hard hit by this? Hmm, that's a good question. Well, I wouldn't say it's specific to the Native community, but there's been a lot of problems with, with seeking unemployment. Obviously, with shutdowns and problems in the economy, young people are still unemployed and don't necessarily have the funds and have had to apply for unemployment, but mm -hmm. that has been very problematic across the state on um, the entire unemployment system. You've probably mm -hmm. heard about that. But well, in terms of loss of essential services, the cases that we normally take under that are usually the eviction cases. Mm -hmm. But happily, the regional legal aids have received extra funding from the state to do those cases with the, the Harris and what have you. Right. But we've been sending a lot of the state court evictions to them to deal with. I guess happily, the tribes have not been seeking to evict a lot of people these days. I think it's a different mindset <laughs> yeah. that the tribes, as far as we can tell, our tribal court eviction numbers have not gone up. We have had a few eviction cases you know, come through our office during COVID, but not at the same numbers that we would normally right, get. Right. So I think that the tribes have been working with their tribal members to try to keep people in their homes. It's phenomenal to hear. So, yeah. And you'd mentioned supporting 12 tribes in Michigan and looking right. at the organization and your role, how critical is it to understand all of the nuances that exist within the different tribes and how they operate and how their communities operate? Oh, <laughs> I would say it's extraordinarily important. I mean, each one of the tribes obviously, you know, has its own set of laws, their own attorneys, their own court staff, their own judges who all have a different way of doing things. And I think in order to be an effective representative for people in the tribal court system, you have to, you know, not only build trust with your clients, but also with the court staff, with opposing counsel, and, you know, knowing the communities and being respectful is extraordinarily important. Right. It <laughs> um, seems like really yeah. a lot to take in and a lot to know because yes. the little things matter in, in interactions mm. with tribal members and communities. So it seems like an added level of this is what it takes to be successful within your organization to be able mm -hmm. to understand that. Yeah. You'd say that's accurate? Yes. You answer that really well. Mm -hmm. And let it be known that, that Cami for the listeners is doing an appropriate level of hand motion when she talks. 
<laughs> I would dare say Cammy is fun to watch talk. I do talk with so my So it's it's Cammy is fun to watch for the listener. <laughs> Which in hindsight I think that does make sense. <laughs> the words tribal sovereignty. Yeah. Very weighty. Just the two words together. But can you talk about tribal sovereignty a little bit specifically? Maybe right now, you know, what are the biggest misconceptions about tribal sovereignty when somebody uninformed really is asking questions? In general, I would say most of the population in the United States have really no understanding of tribes as governments to begin with, or what rights the tribes would even have as governments. I would say that that sort of history or just basic knowledge isn't you know, taught in the schools worth anything. So that's a huge issue. But one of the issues that we face is MILS, the major misconception is, is that, um, that basically the tribes are funding us, <laughs> that the tribes have tons of money and they're all donating to us and we don't need state funding or donations or pro bono attorneys because we're receiving all this money to do the work that we're doing. And it's like, well, no. <laughs> I mean, the tribes are great to work with, but usually what happens is, like governments, they don't really donate money, but they will pay you for work that you do. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you want to be a court-appointed attorney for them, they will hire us as that, but they're not very inclined to just like say, okay, here's $20,000, go do whatever you want to do. And it's like, because they have so many needs themselves, that isn't, right. that really isn't the dynamic, but if we're going to be a court-appointed attorney for them, they'll pay us hourly that the rate that they pay a court-appointed attorney. And we do do you know, some of that work. But we do find it sometimes very hard to get foundation grants or even just pro bono attorneys to do some of the work that we need to do because there's just this misconception that we're funded really well right. <laughs> because we're doing federal Indian law work. That's very yeah. well said because <clears throat> it's something that is is very critical, I think, to the mm-hmm. success of a tribal community and, and essential. Mm-hmm. And are there resources that if somebody is interested in reading about tribal sovereignty, what would be a good place to go to get accurate information? Mm. And you don't have to know the answer to that question. <laughs> well, I realize that's well, kind just, of a... I was having a conversation about this with a friend of mine recently, a law professor. She's like, well, what would you refer them to? Like an old Vine Deloria book? But those are just so old. You're just like, well, uh, I don't know. Well, um, what's old is of... always always popular. Hipsters, <laughs> yeah. like, well. you know, if there's a vinyl version of it, maybe <laughs> monocles are going to make a comeback. Well, for GTB, I'd say Memkawa, Eagle yeah. Returns. Yeah. I, I give that to a lot of guests okay. that come to the studio leave with yeah. a copy of Fletcher's book yeah. just to know where the history, the history. of where they're at. Yeah. 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 And speaking of, mm. of books, you partnered with Angeline Boley on a discussion yes. of her book. She was a guest on our show, actually. A discussion of her book, The Firekeeper's Daughter. And a lot of that talk was regarding domestic violence and criminal jurisdiction on tribal land, which I think is very, very fascinating. And... We started talking about the discussion in the 70s about these gaps in services to mm-hmm. Native American communities. But do you feel like now there's a bit of a resurgence in the discussion of Native American culture and challenges because of pop culture moments like Angeline's book becoming a Netflix show? And are there any relationships between pop culture discussion of Native challenges and your world? Well, I would definitely say that her book has 
shed a light on a lot of the issues, especially Native women have to deal with in terms of trying to fight for their rights when they're victims of domestic violence or sexual assault and the lack of systemic response or availability to provide justice for them. The speakers who we brought on for that community legal education event were two different tribal judges here in Michigan and then a professor from Wayne State Law School. And then Jeff Davis, who's a former AUSA, who did prosecution of crimes in Indian country within the federal court system. They were definitely able to highlight the continued problems in the Native communities with lack of prosecution of crimes. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I think that her book is a wonderful vehicle for spotlighting those sorts of issues. With Reese Witherspoon and whoever else has picked up that book and held it up and said, hey, you should read this and learn about this, I think is wonderful. So yes, I mean, there's definitely opportunities there to use those sorts of items as vehicles. I would say that that one singularly really stands out. Right. Well, it it is um, interesting to note that there can be positivity in yeah. what can go on in pop culture yeah. and committing to, to truth, at least mm-hmm. in the narrative. And her book is amazing. So that's wonderful. And something that she talks about, and we've talked about a few times on our show, and it's very important to Native communities, is the reclamation of language. Mm-hmm. And maybe not talking to specific cases, but has that come into the world of your organization? Is anything related to bringing back and reclaiming Native languages? Well, my staff is both Native and non-Native. I myself am a tribal member, but I'm not Michigan Native. But one of our employees, I guess, recognized kind of the lack of knowledge in some of our employees and decided to take it on himself during our weekly staff meeting to teach kind of like the Anishinaabe word of the day. And as you can guess, that that's Shako Hall who's taking that on himself. Great. And so yes. we're doing that once a week with him teaching a, a native word or a native phrase, yeah. Anishinaabic word or phrase for yeah. our staff. So. That, that's great. Shako's always been real good at just educating the community mm-hmm. as a whole. Is it possible that that could be anything that you'd have to deal with? Well, I don't know that we've we've dealt with particularly Native language issues, but we've certainly dealt with cultural issues in some of our cases. We helped a tribal member be able to reclaim an eagle feather that was taken from his home, I think by a state police officer of some sort. Well, apparently they thought that he didn't have the right to take it, so they served a search warrant on his house and they'd taken it, but we were able to show that he really was rightfully in possession of it and helped him to be able to reclaim it. And in another case, a few years back, a Native mother was in a dispute with the father of her child about whether or not the child's hair should be cut. And so we were able to successfully represent her within the state court system with her trying to preserve the child's hair based on her beliefs. Wonderful. See, that's the kind of great story we're trying to get to yeah. here oh my gosh <laughs> it just took a while that's good no that's that's fine i gotta yes. look inward maybe i'll yeah. get to the point quicker maybe but mm-hmm. when you look at and i think a very very fascinating element of what you do mm-hmm. is potentially having to balance and find a balance between law and tradition mm-hmm. and at what point if ever at all can those two concepts become adversarial 
Potentially. But I don't know that I have necessarily faced that in my life. See, most of what I know about that yeah. is through movies. And I'll just admit my ignorance yeah. there. But it would seem it could be a fascinating challenge to what you mm-hmm. do and having to navigate the difference between the two. Mm-hmm. And could that actually come into your world as something to have to deal with or discuss? Well, when I was in Alaska, there was a community that wanted to banish one of their residents, you know, kind of for the benefit of the entire community. And traditionally, that is what they would have done in that situation. But they had had a young woman come back to the community who was HIV positive, but apparently she was still using and having unprotected sex. And in order to protect the community, they wanted to banish her. And that one always just kind of... Banish. <laughs> yeah, banish. Like, I mean, kick her out of the community. The yeah, word sorry. banish. Kick her out of the community. So everybody understands. Anchorage. Yes. Like, you're not allowed to come back to this village again, sort of, of process. That that just always kind of stuck in my head as kind of a, an example of that, of where kind of tradition or, or viewing of something was kind of very different than kind of Western ideas about civil rights and basic due process rights and stuff like that. Right. But, so, yes, I mean, that definitely happens, but I'm not sure that I've seen anything sure. kind of at that level since I've been back in Michigan. So Looking to sustain mm. th- the future a little bit because mm. when we talk to so many inspiring nonprofit leaders like yourself, mm. and again, like I said, you walk away from days like today going, wow, there's amazing people doing amazing things in these communities looking towards young people what advice would you give to somebody younger to try to get them away from pining towards that corner office and bags of money and the bmw what would you say what's the pull towards the nonprofit world what's the pull towards supporting native communities or anybody in need and is now an easier time to get that message across because it's needed I'm not sure. I'm uh, because you you, the you best felt messenger in that because I've never really felt the the pull towards the corner office. That is true. I don't I, necessarily identify. I mean, when I was at Michigan Law, I mean, I did some of the the Room 200 job interviews, dressed up in the suit and whatever, but it wasn't ever, I guess, where I was at. So, so you're saying maybe people are just made um, or born to be in this world? Well, I think for for some people their fulfillment is better met in that reality. I mean, there's nothing wrong with, you know, making money or working hard or what, whatever it is that, that drives people in that direction. Yeah, we're not trying you know. to smear corporate America here. That's <laughs> <No>. not. <laughs> but, you know, I have friends who have definitely taken those life paths and are, are happy in those, those life paths. It wasn't ever a path for me. I would say I'm relatively happy with some of the life paths I've taken. I'm satisfied with the work that I do, but I'm not sure that I would know how to try to convince somebody to not go down that path because I don't necessarily think that it is necessarily a wrong path for people. It's sure. just about what fits your needs better. But it's more, I guess, I would just say kind of be real about yourself and about what it is that you really want. Don't feel that you should have to go down that path if mm-hmm. that really isn't where you belong. Right. That certainly is not the world for everybody, but the nonprofit world isn't for everybody either. So So we're yeah. gonna call this the soft sell. <laughs> yeah. 
That was a low pressure. (laughs) That was a, you know what? We maybe don't even want you. (laughs) You don't even want to be over here. And then they, I like it. People people be passionate about it. You have a calling when you come to it is you you say you fell into it, but there was a calling. You've already explained Uh, enough. This is where I ended up. I mean, I was never going to do corporate America, but I mean, not that there's anything wrong with that. It's just not where I'm, I'm at or whatever, but in any event, but we've certainly had in our employment, people who have who we've hired who don't really want to be in nonprofit world, <laughs> who really do want to make more money or do other things, and they don't stay long. And it's kind of a waste of our resources to train them for a year or two and then have them leave mm-hmm. or have them be unhappy while they're with us. So, do they, you know. Yeah, is, is it like they're settling or that they're just trying to get a resume together? Yeah. They're trying to do something to do something so that there's not this gap in their resume? Or Yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, because we've had interns that way, and it's just, it's not necessarily the right fit for them with us and us for them, and it would be better if they had had (laughs) something else, because if they're not happy where they are, they're not going to be, you know, doing the quality of work or the compassionate work that we would want them to do. Yeah. So I I wouldn't try to convince somebody who's really meant for corporate America to try to work for us. Corporate America is where you want to be, then Godspeed, go do it. I like this. This is well, what we extrapolate is it takes passion. (laughs) There's noble work going on, and the unilateral recruiting theme for the nonprofit world could be uh, you might not like it here. And just go with that and see what happens. You don't want to sound like uh, Ben Stiller (laughs) and maybe Brad Status. You see that? (laughs) Look it up. But other than that, I think. What you may have been fishing for is, <laughs> say, my son Ontario is named after a character in John Grisham's Street Lawyer. Okay. And that's a great book about yeah. an attorney who was in corporate America, was yeah. very successful, and found himself working in a homeless shelter mm. for some community service. And he saw this underserved population, and it really changed. And so there was a moment mm-hmm. where it was like, wow, like, there's people in need and i have so much mm-hmm. yeah well finally i wanted to ask you a question about and maybe this is something that others wonder because we talk about a lot of heady topics you've talked about amazing things you do for people that are real and that are necessary and and critical for sustaining lives and sustaining family units but on the other side of it if you look at your facebook page you guys have a little fun too. You've got a couple of your meme games, great. You got some dances with wolves going. A Sweeney Todd meme that I really liked. So yeah, I have to go back and find that one. Sharing the pursuit of podcast <laughs> could be one. But how do you? And, and what I noticed mm. on the Facebook page, and I got just a lot of warmth out of looking at it because mm. it, family is the word oh, that yeah. stuck out to me. How do you create a balance between the seriousness of what you do and a little bit of fun, or is that necessary, or do you? Oh, it, it's absolutely necessary, and I'm not sure that we always strike the right balance. Well, it, it, it's a new, newish, still executive director. I'm still trying to, to figure some of that stuff out because it is very much a, a family, and trying to, <laughs> I don't know, be compassionate for employees and all the issues that they have, but then also 
you know, still hold people accountable and say that this is still the expectations for the for the organization is yeah i still got to be the boss and sometimes that that is a hard hard balance (laughs) especially in covid days where most of the employees are working remotely or remotely on a schedule trying to have that still office feeling or connection isn't easy to maintain i mean we have a weekly all staff meeting over zoom on monday mornings for about half an hour and as I mentioned, Shako teaches us the Anishinaabe word of the day, and you know, we talk about whatever big things you know we have coming up that week, or whoever had done something super fun over the weekend. It's yeah. a time for everybody to kind of at least see each other, hear each other's voices, all together, get caught up on whatever's going on in the organization, and then once a week we have our, our case review with all the attorneys going through all of the new intakes, and most of the people who call us are you know usually calling us when they're having a bad time. I mean, that's, that's when people, you know, look for attorneys. It's not usually the proactive, I'm going to do this great thing and I want somebody's help. It's when CPS is at the door, they're calling us. I mean, a lot of what we're discussing is emotionally draining or hard work. We definitely do have to find a way to stay very connected with each other and try, try to keep it, I mean, I wouldn't say light, but a yeah. certain amount of just joking around and yeah. Staying connected, which is especially harder these days. So it is. It, yeah. It's a lot on your shoulders to keep an organization aligned when it's harder to keep them aligned, even when people are not together. So wow. that's extraordinary. What is the best way to support your organization in whatever <laughs> means? Could be volunteering, could be donation. What's the best way to support? Well, you? if there's any. Michigan bar licensed attorneys listening, we, we have a active pro bono program, especially for dealing with expungements right now, that we would love to hear from you. We will provide you training to learn how to, to do expungements, but we certainly have a lot of expungement cases right now looking for pro bono attorney homes. We have a staff member or two who are handling the cases, but we are trying to serve this entire area of Michigan, the 10 county service area for whoever comes in the door. and. It's a lot more than we were necessarily anticipating. So we would certainly love to have some pro bono attorneys or some attorneys volunteer their time. I mean, cases for them are probably about five hours a piece that we certainly could use that help. And we're obviously always open to take donations, <laughs> you know, financial donations. I mean, we have our state and federal grants that we have stable funding, but any additional funding is always welcome. Of course. So. And yeah. the website is www.mils3.org, correct? Yes. And so any pro bono attorney looking to help with expungement, you said training's available. Is that the best way to connect with you or somebody looking for employment opportunities, would they go somewhere else? Well, if somebody's looking for employment, we have one opening right now. Actually, it's an AmeriCorps position to do a medical legal partnership. So it would be doing office hours. I mean, not just at our office in Traverse City, but also at the clinics for Little Traverse and Little River and potentially GTB. So excellent. Yeah. That's wonderful. And donations, I'm I'm just going to say gleefully accepted (laughs) at MILS3.org. Cami, thank you so much for your pursuits. And for all those pursuing with you, supporting those in tribal communities with their critical legal needs and beyond. This is amazing stuff. And thank you for some of the stories you told today. 
And to our listeners, thank you all for listening and for pursuing the positive. Ladies and gentlemen, Kachi Miigwech, thank you very much for joining us on the Pursuit of Podcast. That wraps up 2021 with Michigan Indian Legal Services. Thank you, Cammie, for coming on. 23 episodes. Ryan Buck, thank you so much for hosting. You've been spectacular, my friend. And a big shout out to the Tin Lid Hat Company for supporting our listeners. TinLidHatCo.com. Use promo code PursuitOf for 40% off to our listeners. And for everybody that reached out to NewLeonard.com for all of your podcasting and audio video needs. We look forward to sharing more pursuits with you in the new year. Everybody hang tight. We'll see you in 2022.